From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. We've got a couple of callers that have stuck around from our just-completed live show, and uh, we will talk to them in the next segment, but we won't be taking phone calls beyond that. But we'll we'll be emptying out the mailbag, and as the gentleman told you, if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag, just send us an email to openline at EWTN.com and put Father Wade or Tuesday in the subject line. We'll get it to the appropriate location. And you can always text your question. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall produces the program and our host, as he is every Tuesday, our very favorite Father of Mercy, especially when he's the only Father of Mercy with us, Father Wade Menezes. How are you? I'm doing great, Jack. Thank you so much for that introduction. So I understand that you want to talk about having dinner with like a football team in New Orleans or something? Yeah, right, right. I, I, I will be speaking in New Orleans uh, when this is airing. Uh, that evening I will be, uh, and so that's why we're doing the mailbag today. So that's the communion early. of the saints with the... Y- no? The, you will, yes, the communion of saints and the three states of the church, uh, oh, no doubt. Okay. And, and especially during this month of November, right? Uh, I want to talk about that in Catholic teaching. The phrase communion of saints has two closely linked meanings. The communion existent in holy things and the communion existent among holy persons, which has a further breakdown of three states. So today's springboard is the communion of saints and the three states of the church. So first of all, in regards to holy things, the church refers to the whole communion of spiritual goods, spiritual goods within the church founded by Jesus Christ, which are readily made available to her faithful members. These include a communion in the faith, a communion of the sacraments, a communion of shared charisms, granted by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the church, the sharing in common of material goods, and a communion rooted in charity. Among these spiritual goods and others, the Eucharist deserves special mention, the church teaches, for it is by the Eucharist, to quote the Second Vatican Council, that, quote, the unity of all believers who form the one body in Christ is both expressed and brought about. That's quoting the Light of Nations document uh, in in chapter 1, paragraph 3. And in regards to holy persons, the three states of the Church comprise the communion of saints, the members of the Church triumphant in heaven, the members of the Church suffering in purgatory, also known as members of the Church penitent, who are assured heaven after their time of purification, and the members of the Church militant still living on earth. The Catechism states, quote, in number 1475, in the communion of saints, a perennial link of charity exists between the faithful who have already reached their heavenly home, those who are expiating their sins in purgatory, and those who are still pilgrims on earth. To sum up, then, we believe in the communion of all the faithful of Christ, those who are pilgrims on earth, the dead who are still being purified, and the blessed in heaven, all together forming one church. And we believe that in this communion, the merciful love of God and his saints is always attentive to our prayers. So, holy things, the sacraments, sacramentals, pilgrimages, 
blessings, etc. So holy things and then holy persons. Holy persons includes the three states of the church. Okay, so when we talk about the communion of saints, we're talking about holy things, and those holy things are among holy persons. But the second category there for the communion of saints, uh, we have to break it down further into the three states of the church, the members of the church militant in heaven, the members of the church suffering in purgatory, also known as the members of the church penitent, and those of us on earth still fighting the good fight, I like to say, members of the church militant. So uh, this is why it's so important, and I can never stress this enough, to stay active in the faith, to help you support and pursue your life of virtue. Uh, Again, I quote so often number 1803 of the Catechism because it's so important, the pursuance of virtue and virtuous living, pursuing the good and the true and the beautiful with the five sensory powers of the human body, sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing, and the four faculties of the soul, namely intellect, will, memory, and imagination. These nine gifts show forth the reality of the body-soul compositeness of the human person, and we pursue the good and the true and the beautiful among holy things as holy persons, striving for that good and true and beautiful, united with the church triumphant in heaven, united with the church penitent uh, in purgatory, and we want to do so by pursuing those holy things of the seven sacraments, uh, the sacramentals, like having your rosary blessed and praying the rosary, having your home enthroned with the sacred heart of Jesus and the immaculate heart of Mary, uh, even having your pets blessed. How about the, the beautiful practice, Jack, of, of uh, October 4th, the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi, having your pets blessed because he's known to have loved animals so dearly. You know, I know you and Johnette have, have some hounds there at the house. And you, you uh, have blessed them. And I have blessed them. That's right. We had a beautiful, lovely dinner there one night, and not too long after you had met, moved into your lovely home, and and afterwards we uh, we blessed those two hounds. And uh, I did. I think we also blessed the third one, uh, Maggie May. Maggie May we, was blessed when she was just a wee thing. But I think Johnette that night said, "Yeah, give her another." <laughs> I think I think she <laughs> yeah, said that. I'll so. be honest with you, Maggie May could use an extra blessing. <laughs> yeah. So you know, even we take the mundane, we take the, and by that I mean the earthly. Um, and in other in other writings, you can see the word profane, uh, and I don't mean that in the sense of profanity, but I mean the most base uh, human reality of the earthly, the stuff, quote unquote, of of the earthly reality of the temporal world in which we live. And Holy Mother Church wants to do what what with that? She wants to elevate it because it's part of God's creation. We don't worship creation as God, but we see all created reality is good. So notice that the seven sacraments use what they use stuff. They use material goods, the water at baptism, huh? the oils at baptism and confirmation, the audible exchange of words of consent at holy matrimony, the laying on of hands of the bishop's hands over the ordinandi's head at his ordination, whether diaconate or priesthood, the, the worded sins confessed in the sacrament of penance, um, all these good things, uh, even the things that aren't necessarily part of the, of the material of the rite of, of the sacrament itself, like First Holy Communion, uh, we have the little girl's First Holy Communion dress, or the little boy's at age seven, you know, the the, the little suit he's wearing, or sh- the dress she's wearing at their First Holy Communion at age seven, uh, the age of reason. How about how about the things that are part of the material uh, form and matter and form of the sacrament? Uh, talking about matter, the material reality of the sacraments, the water and wine used for the Eucharist. So the Church wants to take all these these earthly goods, uh, the the profane. 
uh, reality of, of their goodness and elevate them. And we see this and, you know, how many different kinds of rosaries have I seen made out of beautiful stones, so, uh, real stones. There's some, some synthetic stones that are just as beautiful. Uh, and then having the rosary blessed. How about the, the full wool uh, brown scapular, the, 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 the brown scapular that's woolen, huh? made out of 100% wool. Um, you know, it, just taking these things, this is all part of the, the holy things that's part of the doctrine of the communion of saints, coupled with holy uh, persons, among holy persons, and there we see the three states of the church. So this is just really a, a great teaching, the communion of saints and the three states of the church, wherein we see that the church wants to sanctify everything and make it good and holy. You know, one of the the whole notion of the communion of saints was really kind of kind of in in some ways the linchpin of my conversion because mm. I was part of a charismatic evangelical campus ministry when I was in college, and my best friend was uh, raised Catholic and was part of that uh, tradition. And as that tradition kind of uh, disintegrated, and we grew older. He started reflecting back on his Catholic faith, and we were having discussions to that nature, and I always had taken an an attitude toward the teachings of Holy Mother Church uh, as to, you know, where is that prescribed in the Bible? Where do you find that in the Bible? And we had a discussion about, you know, praying for people on earth, and, and, you know, why would you not have the saints who are more alive than we are in heaven pray for us the way that we would have people on earth pray for us? And it made sense to me. And the biggest thing that it did for me is it changed my attitude from looking for where something was in the Bible, and I changed my attitude to looking for whether or not certain Catholic teachings were contradicted by sacred scripture. Mm -hmm. And that was a much healthier way for me to approach that. Sure, sure. And you can see the the cohesive whole, as it were, uh, and the broadening of the intellect and, and the increase of faith and all of that process as well. Truly, truly a beautiful thing. Uh, you know, this is why, again, I can't stress enough, we don't want to be intermittent Catholics or get back to the practicing the faith only when things seem to go dour in our life. No, we want to practice the faith and all of its beauty and richness constantly, uh, not only during the bad times when things seem to move us closer to God, but even during the good times when things are already seemingly going great. Give God the glory. It's His glory. Give Him the glory for how He's moving in your life, how He's using you, how He's using you not only for yourself to be moved as part of the communion of saints one day closer and closer to the beatific vision, but also to aid others in arriving there as well, because He wants to use you as his instrument. Never forget that. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. This is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Um, we have had a caller who has hung on the line with us after a live show who's going to be part of this mailbag program for us, and that is Tom, who is in New Canaan, Connecticut. He's listening on Veritas Radio in the great state of Connecticut. And, Tom, you're on with Father Wade. Uh, yeah, hi, Father Wade. Hello, Tom. Uh, thank, you for you, 
Thank you for your excellent exhortation. I've, I've, I've just always been impressed with you on EWTN-TV on the level of rigor, intellectual rigor that you uh, show, and how inspiring you are. You know, you're, you're really a very unique uh, presence. And, uh, you know, so my question really had to do with uh, Pope Francis's, uh, you know, the, 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 the positive things he said about T- Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day and all the work they did to advance the cause of peace and countering poverty. And um, also, I read a book about Thomas Merton that might be a little controversial. It's called The the Martyrdom of Thomas Merton, and the theory that uh, uh, Mr. Martin had uh, was that, um, you know, the CIA and the uh, U.S. had, had... had real concerns about Thomas Merton and how he was uh, considered a threat to our military uh, efforts in in the, China, in, uh, in, in the Far East. So, uh, yeah, I was just wondering, uh, you know, what your what your overview sure. is on the influence of Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day. You know, he, he was kind of sure. a voice for ecumenism, and in his last message, he he said he he, he did not repre- represent a Pelagian. The Pelagian heresy, which he uh, actually, you know, said, you know, was a, was was a problem. You know? Yeah, sure. Thanks for your great question about both Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day, um, two individuals in the life of the Church who did much to promote peace and uh, to help counteract poverty uh, and and so and social justice in the true vein of the Church, as the Church teaches it, not something in a way that the Church doesn't teach it, like through liberation theology or anything like that. I'm not a scholar of either one of those two individuals, but I can tell you what I do know about them both and what I've heard other scholars say about them. So for Thomas Burton, I've heard that some of his later stuff is somewhat askewed, uh, and isn't exactly the best of his writings, but for the first three-fourths of his writings, uh, in his public career of writing, that is, um, he's just got some fantastic, fantastic stuff uh, that, that's very, very good, especially in regards to spirituality and contemplation and uh, the worldview of creation in an orthodox sense. It's very, very good. And some of his latter stuff that kind of veers towards some Eastern spirituality and so forth, um, we want to be a little bit more careful about that. I've never heard of anything of his being um, uh, actually condemned uh, by the Church. Um, I could be wrong about that, but to my knowledge, and I stand corrected if I am wrong on that, but to my knowledge, none of his writings have ever been condemned, but you need to be savvy enough to be able to wade through some of his later writings. Dorothy Day, it's my understanding she's already servant of God, and her writings are very, very good. In fact, Magnificat, um, the monthly that comes out as a daily liturgical reader uh, out of Dunwoody, New York, um, frequently has excerpts of Dorothy Day. I have a, a very good layman friend of mine who lives in the area who comes to the Fathers of Mercy on Sunday Mass many times uh, with his wife and, and grown kids when they're at home. Uh, they attend Sunday Mass the Fathers of Mercy. He's a great advocate and, and lover of Dorothy Day's writings. You know, she had a very hellacious life that she wasn't af- afraid to reveal to people about. For example, her, her earlier on abortion and whatnot and her repenting from that. 
and, and moving forward with her life and understanding that, you know, the cross is real and that we make mistakes, but the, 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 the love of Jesus Christ and the Blessed Trinity can wrench us out of any depth, regardless of how evil a depth that is from something from our past life. And so she gives great, great hope. So I'd, I'd like to say in cases like this where where um, there might be some askewed writings, like in, the, in Merton's case with his later writings— it's not an either-or. We're not going to shut off Merton completely because of his later stuff and thus shut off his earlier stuff as well because of the later stuff. It's not an either-or. It should be a both-and. And so we want to be able to look at both his earlier stuff and his later stuff to see where he went askewed, again, for example, on some of his Eastern interpretations of Eastern spirituality, which I'm not a scholar on. I've just only heard this from other scholars. Um, we want to be able to, to decipher between those two and see the good that's there and then, and then reject the bad that's there as well, and to understand the teachings of the Church and how he's in harmony with that aspect from his earlier writing. So it's not an either-or, uh, Tom, it's a both-and. But as far as Dorothy Day goes, I haven't heard... Uh, any criticisms about her writings, I've heard people say, well, because of the of the uh, immoral lifestyle she lived when she was much younger, how can the church even be considering her? Hey, read Bert Gezi's Voices of the Saints, which is a 365-day reader, uh, of meant to be a daily reader where each saint's life is maybe a page to a page and a half long. Read Bert Gezi's Voices of the Saints and start reading a saint's life each day. You'll see that the saints weren't goody two-shoes that always lived an absolute perfect life. In fact, it's their conversion stories that give us hope for our own conversion stories. And that's something that needs to be taken into account. So with Dorothy Day, I haven't heard any criticisms about her writings. Uh, I've heard more criticisms about her earlier sinful life and so forth. And even when her social justice uh, uh, writings got a little askewed, she was able to bring them back uh, full circle again in line with the church through good spiritual direction and good confessors that she had. So great question, Tom. We want to be able to always take the good that's present and um, see the alignment with the church, but then shun uh, what's not so good and what could lead us astray if we continued reading it. So great question. Thank you so much. Next up is Cleveland, Ohio. Gene is in Cleveland, a first-time caller. And Gene, thank you so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Father, I, I'm striving for heaven, and I hope that I make it, and I know that we experience complete happiness, but I'm concerned about my children, my adult children who have fallen away from the faith. How can I experience happiness if they don't make it? Yeah, you know, you ask a, a question from a, a mother's loving heart. How could I be happy in heaven, should I make it there, God willing, if my kids aren't there and they don't make it there? You know, it, you ask a question of, 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 of mystery that tries to interpret the eternal from a merely temporal point of view. We're trying to answer a reality of heaven from only an earthly perspective, what we do know is that God's justice is tied to his mercy, and his mercy is tied to his justice. We also know that God sends no one to hell. To do that, one does so by their own doing, with purposeful, unrepentant, mortal sin. Number 1037 of the Catechism, Gene, is very clear on this. It says, quote, God predestines no one to go to hell. For this to happen, a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin, is necessary, and persistence in it until the end. 
In the Eucharistic liturgy, Holy Mass, and in the daily prayers of her faithful, Holy Mother Church constantly implores the mercy of God, who does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Okay? Quoting 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 9. So, trying to answer from a merely earthly perspective, earthly perspective, a reality of heaven is difficult to do. But we take great um, comfort in the fact that we know that God's mercy and his justice triumph in the end. Your question is also a beautiful question because it brings forth the reality of mortal sin because the only thing that prevents one from entering heaven, Gene, is a purposeful, unrepentant mortal sin and persistence in that reality until the end, as number 1037 of the Catechism just told us that I quoted verbatim. 1037, 1037 of the Catechism. So I love your question, not only because it stems from a mother's heart, I love your question because it's a witness question about the reality of mortal sin, grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and done with deliberate consent of the will. That's the only thing that prevents a soul from entering heaven. So if one doesn't die in such a state, one enters heaven, maybe in a delayed fashion by having to still atone for temporal punishment and purgatory. They may not enter heaven immediately, which is what I like to strive to tell people to do, because I, I want to do all my temporal punishment now for my already forgiven mortal and venial sin while still living. This is why I offer my morning offering prayer that I pray daily to all of my listeners. They can find it at fathersofmercy.com. It's the morning offering prayer where I state in such a way, uh, O blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, give me the greatest of graces to atone for all temporal punishment now while still living on earth for my already forgiven mortal and venial sins, thereby attaining the greatest of all graces to enter heaven immediately upon my death, therefore not having to atone for any temporal punishment in purgatory. In other words, I want to do it now. So as long as your loved ones don't die in, in a mor state of mortal sin and persistence in it until the end, they have the hope, one of the three theological virtues of heaven, because of what the church teaches in that number 1037, even though they might have to do some purgation to, a, to be able to enter in a total purified state in heaven, uh, they might have a period of purgation in purgatory first. This is why purgatory is such a, a, a merciful doctrine, even though we don't want to go there. We want God's plan A for us to be enacted in our lives, and that plan A is to go to heaven directly when we die we can still have the virtue of hope that we can enter at least into purgatory. So pray daily the chaplet of divine mercy, which focuses on the mercy of God. And his mercy is tied to his justice, and his justice is tied to his mercy. His justice is tied to his judgment that the, personal, that the person receives when they die in their particular judgment that's ratified at the general judgment at the end of time. Offer your children daily in your prayer as well, Jean, to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Offer your First Friday devotions to the Sacred Heart and your First Saturday devotions to the Sacred Heart, the nine First Fridays and the five First Saturdays respectively, uh, for your children's salvation. Remember, you are not your children's Savior, Gene. You are not your children's Savior, but you are your children's evangelizer. And last Tuesday on November 9th, I talked extensively in one of my answers to one of my live callers about St. Thomas Aquinas's um, three hallmarks of fraternal correction. He defines fraternal correction as an attempt 
Notice he doesn't call it a successful endeavor. It's an attempt to bring back a loved one, back around to the fullness of truth, a loved one who has strayed from the truth. And we do it privately, charitably, and rarely. Those are the three hallmarks of fraternal correction. We do it privately so as not to embarrass them in front of other people. We do it charitably because charity is the queen of the virtues, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, we're told in the New Testament. And also, uh, you do it rarely because they're an adult, they're your grown children, and you can give fraternal correction to your grown children. Gene, you are their evangelizer, you're not their savior. Have the great virtue of hope and practice those devotions on their behalf. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. We'll dig right into that mailbag now. First up out of the mailbag is Irvin. He is uh, uh, writing us. He asks, how do you know if your prayers were successful for a soul? When should a person stop praying for them? That's a great question. You know, we, we simply don't know when our loved one has finally entered into heaven, wherein our prayers no longer serve them in any way because they've entered into the beatific vision. Many of the Church Fathers say when we pray for the members of the Church triumphant, the, the souls in heaven, our prayers do nothing for them, but rather it's their prayers who do something for us. And the members of the Church triumphant, the souls in heaven, awaiting for their bodies to be reunited with them at the second coming of Christ, uh, is one tier of the three-tiered hierarchy of our springboard topic today, the, the communion of saints and the three states of the Church, right? Uh, the members of the Church triumphant in heaven, the members of the Church militant still living on earth, fighting the good fight of faith, and the members of the Church suffering in purgatory, also known as members of the Church penitent. So to answer Irvin's question, you know, how do you know if your prayers were successful for a soul? For example, if we offer a plenary indulgence carrying out on their behalf, uh, when should a person stop praying for them? We simply don't know, but we know this, Irvin, we know that God will take your prayers if they're no longer applicable to your loved one because your loved one has entered into the glorified state in heaven. God will surely, the tradition of the Church teaches through the lives of the saints and even uh, intimated in Scripture, uh, that your prayers will be applied to others. We know this from the book of Maccabees, for example. It's a holy and pious thought to pray for the dead. And God's prayers will be for those who need them, not for those who don't need them. And the, the members of the Church militant on earth need your prayers, Irvin. They're living on earth still with you right now. And so you pray for your brother to return to the faith, for example, while, while he's still living on earth. And that's just an example I'm giving. And you pray for the holy souls in purgatory. And as number 965 of the Catechism tells us, our prayers on their behalf, the members of the church militants' prayers still living on earth on behalf of the church penitents, still, still, or the church suffering in purgatory, our prayers for them are capable not only of helping them, but of making their intercession for us more effective. So do the holy souls in purgatory have an effective intercessory power to pray for us? Yes, provided what's happening first. We are first praying for them. So again, this three-tiered hierarchy of the doctrine of the communion of saints, us for them, them for us, us for them, you know, the, the, the members of the church triumphant in heaven, the members of the church militant on earth, and the members of the church suffering in purgatory. Now, I will add this, Urban, I will add this, that, that Whenever it's an anniversary of death, it's nice to have a, a mass offered for the loved one who died. Whenever it's their birthday, 
uh, even though they're deceased now, try to have a mass set on their behalf because that, that was their earthly birthday and so forth. Um, it's important to pray for the dead. Whenever you get news that someone has died, offer a mass for them. I've done that for the school shootings, for example, in the past when there's been a school shooting, the very next morning's mass that I celebrate is for all those who lost their life. Um, and for the blessed repose of their souls and for the consolation of their loved ones. Uh, but the anniversary of death, their actual earthly birthday, and whenever you hear that someone has died, it's nice to especially offer prayers for them, have a Mass said for them, for example. You can see the parish secretary at your local parish and, and request that a Mass be said on such and such a date. And even if it can't be satisfied on that particular day, uh, you can still uh, have it said on any day applicable to their soul. And again, if their soul doesn't need those prayers because they've entered into the glorified state in heaven, the beatific vision, eternal beatitude by that time, uh, that's that's fine. God will apply it to the souls, those prayers to the souls who need them most. And that's been the constant teaching tradition of the church. Great question, Urban. Thank you so much. We have an email from Matthew. He says, I have grown accustomed to praying lauds and vespers daily, and today uses the office of the dead for All Souls Day. I noticed for the closing prayers today, there are prayers in the common that allow us to pray for specific people. What are some other instances that I should use the office of the dead over the proper or the ordinary? Boy, what a great question that beautifully dovetails with Irvin's question that I just answered. It sounds like Matthew uh, sent us this mailbag question, Jack, on, on All Souls Day itself, just earlier this month. So we can pray the office of the dead, provided it's not usurping a solemnity or a feast. If it's a memorial or an optional memorial, you can pray the office of the dead for the loved one in question. But a feast or solemnity does take precedence, and then the very next day, when it's not a uh, solemnity or feast, you can then pray the office for the dead. When do we want to do that? Well, for example, as a general rule, I just answered on Urban's behalf, uh, on their anniversary of death, on their actual birthday when they were born into this beautiful life. Um, I know some faithful Catholics who even often offer prayers for their perceived conception day, nine months to the day before their their uh, their birth on earth. Uh, think of think of the church's universal calendar celebrating that for the the Blessed Virgin Mary. We celebrate her immaculate conception in Saint Anne's womb, her mother's womb on December 8th, and then nine months later, we celebrate Mary's birthday uh, on September 8th of every year. So we have her Immaculate Conception in her mother's womb, December 8th, that's a solemnity, and then the Memorial of the Nativity of Mary nine months later on September 8th. So some people like to pray for their loved ones on their perceived conception day, on their birthday, definitely on the day of death. Also, um, on the, the, as soon as you can find, as soon as you find out that the person, the loved one, has passed, has died, try to have a mass said as soon as is reasonably possible uh, for you to do so, because we want to offer masses for the dead as soon as we get news that the loved one has died. In answering Irvin's question just now, I, I said that I have the practice. If there's a tragedy of some sort, for example, a school shooting, is the example I use. I try to offer my mass the very next day for those who lost their lives and for the consolation of their loved ones. So, again, Matt. Matthew, when you've um, received the news that the person has died on their anniversary of death, on their birthday, on their perceived conception day, nine days before their birthday, um, even though they're deceased now, these are days where we want to remember them. Uh, we do this for Mary, for example, on the Church's universal calendar. And as long as those days are not 
uh, superseding or trumping a solemnity or a feast, like like uh, the Feast of St. John Lateran, for example, November 9th, that's a feast, or the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, uh, you can celebrate the office for the dead out of the breviary that day. Uh, but if it is uh, a solemnity or feast, then you'd want to wait till the next day to pray the office of the dead. Great question, especially during this month of November, uh, wherein we commemorate the holy souls in a special way by kicking it all off on November 1st with the great solemnity of all saints. Two great questions on, the, on praying for the dead from both Irvin and Matthew. Thank you both. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. Uh, Bob writes in, I returned to the church after a 40-year venture in the evangelical church. My wife believes that once we are saved, we are no longer human, but new creatures in Christ. How can I respond to this with the Catholic teaching? It's becoming a a contentious point with her. Well, you want to share with her what the Church teaches in regards to Christ's own glorified, risen, and transfigured state, because Christ had a human nature just like ours in every single way but sin. So, for example, the 40 days of the post-resurrection accounts of Christ, after his resurrection but before his ascension, he continues to appear to his disciples and apostles. And from things he does in that state during those 40 days of what are called, again, the post-resurrection accounts, we can understand that while the human body in its glorified, risen, and transfigured state has new gifts, what are called dotes in Latin, D-O-T-E-S, new gifts, it still remains human nature, it still retains its human nature in its absolutely perfected state. And we see four such clear traits of the glorified, risen, and transfigured body um, demonstrated by Christ himself. He's still Christ. He's still in his human nature. He's still God, obviously, uh, the second person of the Trinity incarnate. But his human nature, while though changed through these four primary gifts, he doesn't become other human uh, in his human nature, quote-unquote. Uh, he remains God. So when 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 we are risen, glorified, and transfigured, God willing, we make it to heaven, we will have these four gifts, these four dotes that Christ himself demonstrated during his 40 years of his post-resurrection accounts, but yet it's just us in our human state brought to perfection. We're not what your wife thinks being other human, quote-unquote, other hyphen human. We're not entering into an other... Uh, uh, we're still human, but just perfected humans uh, in heaven, and Christ demonstrates this himself. For example, the, the Church's constant teaching regarding the composition of the human body after its resurrection is twofold. Number one, the bodies of the just will be remodeled and transfigured to the pattern of the risen Christ, while the bodies of the godless in hell will rise again in incorruption and immortality, but will not be transfigured in hell, okay? Uh, here, then, are the transfigured properties and the, the four primary gifts or dotes assumed by the resurrection resurrected and transfigured bodies of the just that end up in heaven. St. Paul identifies four distinctive qualities for us in his epistles, and Christ demonstrates them himself. And so since the first century, the Church has developed this revealed doctrine about the four qualities of the risen bodies of the just in heaven, and they have been given technical terms, impassibility, subtility, agility, and clarity, and I'll just comb through each of the four of them briefly, and Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, expands on them in detail, and in my book, The Four Last Things, from 2017, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell, 
a catechetical uh, treatment of the Church's eschatology, which is the study of the last things, four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, three of which will apply to each one of us personally, death, judgment, heaven, or hell. I talk at length about what St. Thomas Aquinas teaches about these four gifts, these four dotes. So I'll comb through them briefly now. Number one, impassibility uh, regards the incapability of suffering. That is, the body's inaccessibility to physical evils of all and any kind, such as sorrow, sickness, injury, or death. It may be more closely defined as the impossibility to suffer or to die. The Latin phrase for this is non passi pati mori, the incapability to suffer to die. Number two, subtility regards man's spiritualized nature at the resurrection, and the archetype of the spiritualized body is the risen body of Christ himself, which emerged from the sealed tomb and penetrated closed doors. Thus, subtility grants the resurrected body, the example, to pass through solid objects. Again, this was seen when Christ passed through solid or locked doors in the upper room during the 40 days of his post-resurrection accounts. Think of, think of the doubting Thomas, for example. Uh, he appeared in the upper room through penetrated locked doors to tell Thomas, hey, come here. Uh, put your finger in my side and touch my wounds, huh? See that I'm, I'm truly here. Agility, the third of the fourth, four gifts regards the body's uh, incapability in, it, in its transfigured risen state, uh, the capability of the body to obey the soul with the greatest ease and speed of movement that depends only on an act of the will. This is my favorite of the four. It forms a contrast to the heaviness of the earthly body, which is conditioned by the law of gravity. So the characteristic of agility was manifested by the risen body of Christ, which was suddenly present in the midst of his apostles and which disappeared just as quickly. Again, the Gospel of St. John, for example, chapter 20, um, gives us a hint of this. They recognized him in the breaking of the bread in the scene on the road to Emmaus, and then he vanished from their sight right after he went into their home to sup with them, to have supper with them. Right at the breaking of the bread, he vanished, we're told in John's Gospel, chapter 20. So the intrinsic reason for agility lies in the perfect dominion of the transfigured soul over the body to the extent that it moves the body through space with the speed of thought. So the angels can do this, but it makes sense that the angels can do this because they're pure ra rational being. They don't have a body. So what's so great about the, this characteristic of agility that the angels have without their body is that the glorified, transfigured human will have it in heaven with a body. That's what makes it so great. And lastly, number four, clarity, the Latin is claritas, regards the glorified body being free from everything deformed and being filled with complete and resplendent beauty and radiance. Each person's clarity will vary according to the decree of glory in the soul, and this in turn, each person's degree of glory, will depend on a person's merit before God based on charity practiced while still living on earth. What do you think of that, huh? So faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. This is why love is so important right now while still living. Clarity then regards the glorified splendor of the resurrected body and its complete lack of imperfections or deformities. Thus, whatever imperfections or deformities the, bodies ha the body had on earth will be taken away and will not be present in heaven. Uh, an extremely important note here, we must note that Christ's wounds, which would be seen as imperfections, right? because they're obtained after birth. Deformity is something you have at birth, like a, like a club foot, or maybe one of your fingers didn't fully develop in utero, 
And so you're, you, were formed, you were born with that deformity. But an imperfection is something you obtain after birth, like Christ's wounds, he was crucified. Or maybe a car accident leaves you with a scar from your lower left earlobe down to the mid part of your neck from the stitches. That, that would be an imperfection as opposed to a deformity. Here's the thing, whether imperfection or deformity, all will be gone in heaven. Neither one will be present in heaven. But St. Thomas Aquinas teaches we must note that Christ's wounds do abide in heaven, and they too are glorified, and that they remain a sign of his triumph. They are not seen as a sign of perfection. Thus, Christ's wounds of his resurrected and transfigured body are not considered signs of imperfections. Again, deformities are things you're born with, imperfections are things you're not born with, but you get afterward, like a car accident scar or something. And Christ's wounds would fall under that latter category of imperfections because he obtained them after his birth. So for us humans, whether imperfection or deformity, neither will be in heaven in the glorified risen state. But Christ's imperfection, uh, Christ's wounds, which he obtained after birth at age 33, tradition tells us when he died, he still holds those in heaven because they're not seen as imperfections. They're seen as signs of his triumph over death. It's interesting, St. Thomas Aquinas also teaches that the second reason why Christ retains his wounds in heaven is to upbraid, that's the word he uses, to upbraid or scold the damned, so that the damned in hell, who went there by their own doing, because God sends no one to hell, only purposeful, unrepentant mortal sin leads you to hell. Christ's wounds remain for a second reason, to upbraid or scold the damned who know that Christ hold those wounds because he died for our sins, and yet they chose not to repent of their sins. So that's the second reason why Christ retains his wounds, is to upbraid or scold the damned, who by their own doing, through purposeful, unrepentant mortal sin, number 1037 of the Catechism, 1037, uh, as I said with our, our, one of our first callers, um, Gene, I believe it was, uh, go to hell on their own doing. God sends no one to hell. And so that's the second reason why his wounds remain, is to serve as a constant reminder to the reprobated or, or the damned that, that Christ died for them, and yet they rejected that dying on the cross for themselves. They rejected it. And we surely don't want to fall into that camp. So great question. Thank you so much. We really appreciate that question, uh, Bob. And hopefully you can share this teaching with your wife to share with her that it's not an other human state we entered into. It's actually a perfected human state that we enter into. There's a great question, uh, excuse me, a great quote by St. Ignatius of Antioch, who died about the year 107. I quoted him in last week's show in my springboard topic on Made for Heaven. So I would have your wife listen to that as well. It aired just last week, the date of it is November 9th. You can hear it in the podcast at EWTN.com. I quoted uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch, who died in 107. He quotes this, he says this, on his way to Rome to die in the Roman Colosseum under the emperor Trajan. He says, only when I get there, meaning heaven, not Rome, meaning heaven, only when I get there can I fully be a human being. In other words, only in heaven can we enter into our full human state, what it's meant to be in all its perfection, which includes these four gifts, the impassibility, the agility, uh, the subtility, and the impassibility. Um, Only in heaven 
when I get there, St. Ignatius of Antioch tells us on his way to Rome to be martyred in the Roman Colosseum under the Emperor Trajan, only when I get there can I be fully a human being. So in other words, it's human being brought to its perfection. It's not what your wife thinks, uh, which as you stated, uh, we will no longer, she believes, my wife believes we will no longer be human, but rather new creatures in Christ. Well, we will be new creatures in that our human nature is brought to its perfection, but we'll still be human. And this is the teaching you want to give her. So have her listen to today's response on the four dotis on this November 16th podcast. Have her listen to the opening springboard of last week's podcast for November 9th, when I quote St. Ignatius in the fact that we're made for heaven, because that's the springboard topic, made for heaven. And then thirdly, read the section more in depth on the four gifts in my book from 2017, uh, the Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell. So these are the three things for your homework to share with your wife since you ask in your question, what can I do to help her see more clearly the Church's teaching? Great question. We thank you so much, Bob, for your question today. Angela says, you've spoken about what are called last rites and said there are four things to ask for at the time of death. What are they and what do they do? Sure. Uh, well, I, I talk about this in regards to the last rites, as Angela says. Uh, it's the anointing of the sick, holy viaticum, one's final holy communion, prayers of commendation for the dying, which includes the litany of the saints prayed over the dying loved one. How beautiful is that, to be dying and have the litany of the saints prayed over you by order of Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ. And number four, the apostolic pardon. Now, there is a fifth element here that constitutes the last rites, if the person is able to do it. What is it? Uh, confession. Or if they feel called to do it. It's possible to go give the last rites, the four elements I just stated, the anointing of the sick, uh, Holy Viaticum, one's final Holy Communion, uh, prayers of praying prayers of commendation over them, which includes the litany of the saints, and then giving them the apostolic pardon. And they being audible and conscious and, and auricular, they are, they're able to speak, but they don't feel they need confession. They're not aware of any sins, mortal or venial, surely not mortal. So they can say, no, Father, I don't feel the need to go to confession, but please give me the last rites. But if they're audible, if they're auricular, if they're able to speak, if they're able to do that, they, then Father should ask them, do you feel the need to go to confession before I apply the last rites, which are these four other elements? If they say yes, they want to go to confession, then that would be a fifth element to the last rites. Uh, but it's up to the person. Now, if they're non-auricular, if they're non-audible, for example, they're in an ICU unit because of a terrible car accident they were in, and once in ICU, the loved ones, the family members, call the priest to the bedside, and the ICU staff at the hospital indeed lets the priest go in to administer the last rites, in that case, they're non-audible, they're non-auricular, they got all this apparatus and hoses and everything on them in the ICU unit. In that case, a lot of Catholics don't know this teaching, in that case, the anointing of the sick, the first of the four elements of the last rites, doubles as confession. How beautiful is that? But the priest needs to have some knowledge, or the family members need to tell the priest that they have knowledge that, they, that the person would have wanted the last rites, they, they would have wanted confession, etc. And that's a, that's a beautiful part of the teaching as well. This is why it's important to stay active in the Church throughout our life not to practice the church at all at all and blow her off and blow off her sacraments and say to heck with it all, but yet in an ICU situation, oh my gosh, you want the church there for you, okay? 
So you have to have some indica- you have to have given some indication throughout your life that you would have wanted these last rites, that you would have wanted to confession, that you would have wanted confession even if you were non-auricular or non-audible, uh, that you would have wanted the anointing of the sick to double this confession. Okay, so this is why it's important that your family and friends who are Catholic know that you want these last rites if you're ever in a situation where the priest needs to be called suddenly, right? Um, but for, for those who are auricular, maybe they're just, they're dying of old age, so they're still, they're still able to speak and so forth. They themselves can tell the family, loved ones, hey, call the priest to my bedside, I want the priest to come. But to answer the question directly, uh, Angela, it's, it's anointing of the sick, holy viaticum, which is one's final holy communion, prayers of commendation for the dying, which includes the litany of the saints, and the apostolic pardon. But always the priest should ask for confession if the person's able to confess. If not, the anointing of the sick doubles as that. And then should the person recover, this is an important teaching too, praise God the person should recover from their ICU state, let's say, when they were non-auricular or non-audible. They are then bound to still confess any known mortal sins that they have, precisely because they've received the great gift of recovery if they're now able to make an auricular confession, they need to do so, especially of the known mortal sins. Great question. Thank you so much. All right. I'm going to give you the luxury of a 90-second block of time to tell everybody everything they should know about the Fathers of Mercy. The Fathers of Mercy, we are a order of religious priests and brothers who are making their way toward the priesthood, whose primary apostolate is preaching parish missions, retreats, and devotions across the United States and Canada and Australia. We go in at the invitation of a pastor or a properly deputed layperson by the pastor, or an organization that's Catholic, that's approved by the bishop. So, for example, a Catholic family conference, a week-long parish mission, a father-son retreat, a mother-daughter retreat— an active, dynamic uh, preaching apostolate where we go on location and preach the truths of the faith. Uh, The week-long parish mission is probably the most popular event we do, but we're called in for many, many weekend retreats, many, many Catholic conferences at hotels that are held by dioceses, men's retreats, women retreats, as I said, father-son retreats, mother-daughter retreats. Uh, During the pandemic time now, uh, not so much Canada and Australia, but we're hoping that'll be picking up again. And praise God, after 2020, and we had a, because we had a a dearth of of speaking events because of the pandemic. Praise God, we're starting to go out on the road again. In fact, I'm kicking off Advent by preaching in uh, New Orleans, uh, California in two locations, and also uh, in New Jersey. So uh, I have a busy Advent ahead of me, but vocations at fathersofmercy.com. Write our vocation director, Father Ken Geraci, vocations at fathersofmercy.com. Or check us out at fathersofmercy.com. Would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch Pacwa, live and in living color. Until we get together then, God bless.